לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשרס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Shalom, and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamet, and joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski of Talmachek of Long Island and Anshay Chesed, respectively. And it's great to see you guys. It's great to see you. We are talking about a great Parsha this week. They're all great Parshas. I always feel like when we say great Parsha, it's... Um, it's not fair because they're all great. There's, they're Until all... we get to Vayikra. Until we get to oh, come on. Tazriya Mutora, the best. We did that. Even that oh. is great because the, the truth is that everything is meaningful. It's just sometimes it's more obvious and sometimes you have to dig a little more. Sometimes you do have to dig. So here, what makes this Parsha beautiful is it's got all the elements of life in it death, burial, love. Romance, courtship, journey, character, humor. Let's talk. Let's begin. So we start off with the Parsha. Tell us, Barry Chesler, tell us how the Parsha begins. What's the report? So last week we ended with Akedat Yitzchak, the sacrifice of Isaac, and all of a sudden Sarah is dead. And there are two interpretations the rabbis offer for her death right after the Akedah. In one, she finds out that Isaac has miraculously survived and her heart bursts from joy. And in the other one, she despairs over the loss of her son who was born to her in her old age and she dies of heartbreak. But in either case, it presents Avraham with a problem. He is a sojourner in the land and he needs to bury his wife. And so he goes to Ephron Achiti, the Hittite, and seeks to secure a parcel of land where he could bury his wife. And that is Maratha Machpelah, the cave of Machpelah, which exists still today and became the burial site not only of Avraham and Sarah, but of Yitzchak and Rivka and of Yaakov and Leah. And that's where we begin. And then the verse, the Torah begins with that curious verse that Sarah died at the age of 100 years and 20 years and seven years. And Rashi comments that she was as sinless at 100 as she was at 20 and as beautiful at 20 as she was at seven, basing himself on a passage in Breshi Rabbah. But it's a kind of curious comment that Rashi makes because one would think that a seven-year-old is more sinless than a 20-year-old and a 20-year-old more, more beautiful than a seven-year-old. But there we have it. So, so be, can, we, can, we, can we talk for a second about the age? Because so she's 127 years old. And if you follow the rabbinic midrash here, that means that Isaac was 37 years old at the, at the Akeda. I, I, I don't know how, Jeremy, how do you feel about that? How do you, how do you react to a 37-year-old man? Yeah, it's, it's, it, it doesn't really enhance one's understanding of the Akedah, the gentleness of Vayomer Yitzchak El Avi, Vayomer Avi, 
And Isaac says, and Isaac says to his father, he says, Father, and father says, Here I am, my son. It's it's quite hard to imagine that story making sense if if Yitzhak is a full-grown adult. And I have to disagree when you're done. Okay, that's good. Disagreement is 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 good. You know, it's it's it seems like the midrashic tale is wagging the Pshadic dog. I, I have a I have a another theory, but go uh, ahead, Barry. Okay, so in the Torah, it's presented as a test of Abraham. And Abraham is the main character, and Isaac is actually incidental to the story. He's like a catalyst. But for the rabbis, it's Akedah Yitzchak, because the real hero of the story is Yitzchak, who submits to his father. And that takes far more, I think, to imagine a 37-year-old man getting up on the altar and willingly submitting to his father raising a knife against him. And I think that that's what appealed to the rabbis. And that's why Nisayon Avraham becomes Akedah Yitzchak, because they shift the focus. I, I have a different uh, take on this. I, of course, your your Because your name is Yitzchak, my that's name why. Is Yitzchak, and of course, it's, it's um, I can't shake the, the impression that the text is making of a little boy. And uh, so I picture Yitzchak in the, in the Akedah about six or seven years old, because that's, he, re, he responds at that level. So if we were to play it out, that Sarah dies at 127 and Isaac was six at the Akedah and she got information that Abraham went to sacrifice him when he was six, that means that she would have to live 30 something years, 31 years, knowing that her husband was about to kill her son. I think that that knowledge is just too, too much to bear. And I think the rabbis, have a, a, of course, the text justifies it in t in because of the connection, the juxtaposition. But there's all the deeper level here is that they have Rahmanas on her. She, she doesn't have to live with the terror of, of, of the knowledge as it is, as it is. Anybody who reads the text for the first time is plagued with questions about the relationship between Abraham and Sarah. After all, here at the beginning of, of this parsha, so what does it say? Uh, um, and so he is where? He's in Beersheba and she's in Hebron. Last time I checked, they're not, they're far away. You've got to take a whole bus to get from Beersheba to Hebron. You got to change. You got to yeah. change the bus. <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a huge journey. It's a, they're living in separate houses. They're living in separate tents. They're sleeping in separate beds. There, there's... So, there's a penetrating insight from Shalom Paul I heard many years ago. So the Akedah concludes with Avraham returning by himself. Yeah. And Shalom Paul's explanation was that once your father raises a knife to you, you have nothing to say to that person ever again. And go. they could not go back together. But I want to pick up on something else, Elliot, because if we pursue the chronology, if Isaac is 37 and Rivka is born at the end of the Parsha, so when they when he gets married at 40, Rivka is only three. Right. And that is, shall I say, kind of twisted, but that's codified in Jewish law because that's the age of betrothal. Indeed. Okay, so they, they, they are in a box there. This is this is probably, you know, this is the, the problem with biblical chronology. Everything else works out, provided you accept these little things here. 
that Yitzchak is 37 and Decada, and Rebecca is three years old when she's betrothed. Three years old when she when she sees, and you know, hopefully we'll get to the passage where she she really speaks for herself and at at this, you know. She's, she's quite she's, eloquent at three. At three years old, she's the most formidable of the matriarchs. Okay, so uh, anybody want to ta- tackle the negotiation between Abraham, Abraham, and and Ephron the Hittite? I, I have only one thing to say about it, which is a, a, a little small point of comparison. You know, in, in a certain sense, there are two broad approaches to um, Jewish religion. It's this family clan tradition. And it's a Torah religious message of a, an encounter with God. And both of them are obviously indispensable. We have to be Am Yisrael. We have to be in a covenant with God. But when David will buy um, the, the, uh, the Goren Ornan, when he will buy the, the threshing house of Ornan Hayibusi to build the temple, he spends 50 shekel kesef. Mm-hmm. And when Abraham buys the kever, buys the grave in the Merata Machpelah for burial, for like the rootedness of his family is 400 shekel kesef. So in a sense, there is a, the, the Torah's or the Tanakh's priorities about what is really, really definitive about this people's hold in the promised land and the sacred land. Is it the, is it the temple site, which costs 50 shekels, or is it the grave site, which costs 400 shekels? Now, we live in a time in 2020, you know, after Baruch Goldstein and, and, the, and the complicated political things about Hebron and, and, and whatever. Um, so I don't want to fall into a, a trap of putting too much uh, weight on, you know, this Torah story for our political, for our political, uh, you know, describing political realities. But I think this is really important that the Torah's view about our ancestors' burial is actually eight times more important than than the space for the sacred temple. So it raises a question because all the numbers in Breshid are kind of out of whack. The generations between Adam and Noah lived for hundreds and hundreds of years, from 969 of Methuselah to um, 365 of Hanoch, who lives less than anyone else, but still far longer than any of us live. So I wonder if the 400 shekel is just part of Breshit's um, inflation of numbers. I had a friend in high school who used to begin stories, if it was about a bicycle, for example, he would say, imagine the biggest bicycle you could imagine. In my story, this one is bigger. And so it's like the 400 shekel is like this inflated sum because perhaps it wasn't meant to be taken quite so seriously, but it was just to make a, a larger point about value. No, I disagree. I, I, what I want to say is that that there is reading through the negotiation. There's the 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 Abraham's interest is to establish unquestionable title to the to the land to the property, and he is willing to pay an inflated price in order to establish incontrovertibly. You know his his uh, 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 ownership of the property. Look, Ephron is is willing to say, oh, "I'll give you the land. Uh, you know, go. You can you can bury her among us. You know, we're 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 close. You know." And he's like, "Nothing to it. I want to give you money for it." Uh, you know, and then he's whining for it. And, it's, and what's a what's a small piece of land worth for four hundred shekels? So, uh, you know, so he, he gives the price, and Abraham 
seizes the price immediately, and that way it establishes incontrovertible title to the land. So the expression that's used over and over again for people that die is that they sleep with their fathers. And your suggestion then, Elliot, is that you can only sleep with your fathers on land that you own. That's 100% correct. I actually think that is exactly the message that, um, that the only thing, and we can say this in poetic language, the only thing that you'll, you know, you can't take it with you, you can't take your car with you, and you can't take your you know, widescreen TV with you, but you actually, the only thing you ever really own is your Daladamot of your, of your grave. And I think that the Torah is portraying Abraham as wanting to own it in a deep, in a deep and serious way. You know, it's so interesting because we, we deal a lot with burial and uh, in the pulpit rabbinate. And, you know, from time to time, we'll get out to, to these the cemeteries and they have large family monument, plot, mausoleum, things. And, People don't do that anymore. They don't buy, you know, uh, big, you know, there are 12 plots, 18 plots, 20 plots, you know, in a, in a certain area. You know, people will buy for them and their spouse and they assume that their children are going to be elsewhere at this point. I don't, I don't know of anybody who buys a, uh, a large number of plots. In fact, what happens is uh, we, people will, it happens regularly, people call or email and say, I have a plot to donate. Uh, what should we do with it? It's in my family plot, but it's empty. Nobody's in there, and so we um, we we will gladly take you know discretionary uh, plots from people in case you know people don't have the ability to to pay for a plot. We'll we'll provide them a. Actually, on Sunday I have a funeral, and um, the the deceased um, arranged you know prepaid and arranged her own funeral before, and. And I'm just like trying to try to place yourself in that person's in, in the experience of that. Okay, I'm making arrangements for my own burial. Yeah. And I think that's a, like a, a if you if you think about it, if you reflect on it, that's actually an incredibly profound spiritual model. And Abraham in this story, he is dealing with the fact that he has to come all the way from Beersheba. He's got this terrible thing, and he has to he has to mourn Sarah and give her. Uh, give her eulogy, but he's also buying his own grave, and he's buying the grave of his of his um, child and daughter-in-law and grand grandchild and granddaughter-in-law, and I think that's actually quite profound. So what, well, you, what, what adds to the profundity, I think, is that we think of death as being the end, but for Avraham, this is the beginning, because yeah. he's buying the grave, the the Kever Machpelah, for the future. Not for the past. Totally correct. By the way, also in in the uh, this may also be in the in the regular rabbinic midrash, but it is is certainly in the Zohar. Is that um, that Abraham vayaratz Abraham el habakar back with the angels last week? Abraham runs to the bakar, and they scramble up the letters, and he's vayaratz Abraham el kever. He ran towards the grave, and he saw a light. And he saw that that Adam and Eve were also buried there, which makes this a really profound meditation on mortality. Like you see that you are Ben Adam, you see that you are Ben Chava, you are a child of of the humanity, and you're going to have to walk through this light. We're religious people, so we think that there's a light between this world and the next. And and Abraham is oriented towards that piece of destiny. You know, we're going to talk on on now. The the story is going to go, and, I, and now I get to ask a question. <laughs> the story is going to go. Abraham arranges for Sarah to to die, and he knows that he is himself 
about to die. And he calls his servant um, to do him a mission. And he, he makes him swear, he makes him testify. Uh, as, the, as the tradition goes, it's place, place your hand beneath my thigh. Testify. Testify. He's, he's, it's the thigh region. You know, that's how they did it in the ancient world, is that they, is that they testified by grabbing onto certain testimonial parts of the body. And, and Abraham sends off his servant. And, and Rabbi Malamit, why don't you tell us your, your view of what it is that Abraham wants of the servant and what it is that makes the servant kind of special? I think Abraham is really charging the servant, who we're calling Eliezer because he's named in a different place, although it may not be. He's saying, look, you, you are in charge of the destiny of my family. And what I want you to do is I want you to get a, a, a bride, a woman, for my son to marry. Uh, this is a woman that um, should not be from uh, the stock of anybody in this land. Uh, let, me get, let me pull up the, 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 the text. Um, so it says here, God who took me from my, uh, my, 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 my land, my, 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 my father's household, and from my, uh, my, my uh, uh, place of birth. I want you to go back to uh, that, that place. He says, Do not take any woman for my son from the Canaanites. Among whom I'm dwelling, you will go back to my Eretz and my Moledet. And of course, we hear the echo of and you'll get the woman there. And so, the, to make a long story short, he loads up a big caravan, 10 camels, and he goes and he makes this bargain. He says, The woman that's going to come out and provide for me and for my camels, that will be the woman. And of course, we discover that she is Rebecca. She is Abraham's relative. She is the daughter of Betuel uh, and, or granddaughter of Betuel, no, daughter of Betuel. Yeah, granddaughter, right. Granddaughter of Betuel, although there's, there are, there's a different tradition. And what ensues is, it's not a negotiation. She, as soon as she presents to Eliezer with kindness by providing all this water. Eliezer is, is, is just elated with joy. And, and you've got to admit, this is such a beautiful story. It's, it's, I mean, I, you, it's placed here, it's the longest chapter in, in the book of Genesis, one of the longest in the entire Torah. And uh, it's placed here, I think, as a bridge between the generations and, 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 and really establishes fundamentally the centrality of marriage in the worldview of uh, of the Torah, and also of love, of relationship, and of of the the sense that uh, that destiny brought these two individuals together, despite the fact that that uh, Abram had to dispatch his servant to get her. I, it's, it's just a wonderful story. Now. I thought that we were we emphasized in the in the previous stories about Abraham that he had to leave, he had to leave all that behind. He had to leave his Beit Av and, and his Eretz and his Moledat. And now Abraham is retrojecting back to those same people in those same places. W why do you think that's, that's the- I don't, I don't think, I wouldn't look at it as retrojection. I would say 
that there is definitely a value in what's the familiar, in family. These people are family to, to, to him. Not only that, but there is a subtle tension going on. It's not subtle. I mean, it's low. Okay, so do not take a woman for my son from the Canaanites girls. I don't want just any ordinary Canaanite girl for her, him. Why? It's, you know, there are plenty of commentaries in Midrashim that say they are idolaters, they have bad values, they're evil. As my late grandmother would say, feh, feh on the Canaanites. Feh, we don't like them, they're awful people, so we can, we can do that. But I think there's something much more profound going on there, which is that when you are just a little person, when you have, you know, you're, you're a small entity, and your child marries in the larger entity, the pressure of assimilation is much, much more profound. So that means that for Abraham, his son is still vulnerable to assimilating to the dominant culture. And the dominant culture is not going to be the culture that ensures the covenant. That's also true for Yaakov. Yaakov is, supposed, is, is, is actually the same words. Don't take a woman from the Canaanites uh, for to 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 marry, uh, precisely because it will be as you will assimilate when you are a family, when you are a clan, when you are the Kennedys, when you are the uh, Kushners, when you are name your family, <laughs> right? You marry into that family and you assimilate into the larger family. When you are a critical mass, by the time Jacob has twelve sons and one daughter, it's a substantial family. He does not direct his children to marry only within kith and kin. He, he, he doesn't say anything. They do end up marrying. They end up marrying Canaanites. We know that Judah married a Canaanite. We know that Joseph married an Egyptian. Uh, the reason is because they are secure, they're a family, and they understand that any woman coming into a family with 12 men is going to assimilate into that family. So what's striking is that Yaakov is commanded not to marry a Canaanite because his brother is married too. His brother's married to... to yeah, and the consolation prize is for him to marry a daughter of Ishmael. Yeah. Right, when he wants to make amends with it. So he wants to, he finds someone within the family, but not quite part of the family to marry as well. Because there is this tension between the family and the nation that plays itself out in Sefer Breshit. It's a struggle to become a nation. So what's Where, interesting tell, me something, tell, me, tell me a little bit about the woman that he actually marries or the the girl depending if we, if we count rabbinic chronology she's quite a young girl but that doesn't appear to to be be true in the story as we said um, i have a congregant by the way who's a sculptor and he's got a spectacular sculpture of the young rebecca uh carrying the 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 pitcher on her on her head and the little goat frolicking around her 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 feet Tell me a little bit, Barry, about, about Rivka and why she gets chosen. I, I think there are two things that recommend her, a before and an after. So the test is that Eliezer, we'll call him that for because we can't call him Elliot, but <laughs> Eliezer says, whoever will water my, give me water as well as my camels. So she's a balat chesed. She's not only concerned about human welfare, but also about animal welfare as well. 
And that speaks volumes to Eliezer. And I think it should speak volumes to us because she is not, she might want to please the, the stranger who comes, obviously laden with a lot of things, but she's also concerned about the animals. She treats them as living beings. But the other thing I think that sometimes we don't pay enough attention to is when she's given the choice of staying for a few days or going, she says, I'm ready to go now. That, that's, that's a critical moment. And that willingness to go also speaks volumes because Rivka is pointed towards the future. So it's verse 58. They, they speak to her. They ask her. Are you going to go with this guy? In one word, she says it all. So all of Jewish destiny depends on, on Rebecca. This is what's right. so critical, what's so amazing about this character. She And she is, she turns out, I think we all agree, as the most formidable of the matriarchs. Totally agree. I, I feel like, I feel that the, in, in a sense, even the three most important, you know, not, not, not now calling patriarchs, matriarchs a gender divide, but the three most important ancestors are Abraham, Rebecca, and Jacob, because the, the Torah is telling a story that all of our most important people have to make a journey. And Abraham has to leave a parent's house and Rebecca has to leave a parent's house. And Jacob has, having fleed, fled uh, the murderous Esau, he's, he's in Mesopotamia, he has to leave a parent-in-law's house with his, with his wives who are leaving their parents' house. To be, to be a biblical, you know, ancestral founding figure, you have to go on this difficult hero's journey. And Isaac, I've got, I'm not, not, not God forbid to, to be uh, denigrating of Yitzhak Avinu, but he is the, the weakest of the patriarchs. He doesn't have to make the journey that every other one does have to make. And it, and it is a statement about their power, strength, and, and exactly as, as Barry just said, she says, Abraham was told lech lecha, and she's, I volunteer, lalechet, I want to go. She's I'm, I'm, I'm a traveler. She's the inverse of Abraham. Well, let me, let me, as a Yitzchak, uh, let me, let me, let me speak in defense of Yitzchak. Okay. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, we, we totally understand. We Yitzchaks of the world totally understand the idea of drama and, and adventure and journey and the establishment of personality. But <laughs> <laughs> there's also something to be said for rootedness, for continuity, for being the figure understanding willy-nilly that he is the transitional figure. And, and in a sense, the, the father and the son are, are much larger than life characters. They're, they're, he, he has to know that his father is just larger, much more charismatic, much more interesting a character. And of course, having experienced the Akeda, you know, what it did to him, who knows? And he sees that his son, he doesn't see by the time that his son, by the time his son emerges into maturity, as we'll see next week, you know, he, he, he is a bit blind to reality also. But there's- Well, he's contained by the land, but he's also constrained by the land. Yes. He does so much that Avraham does. He digs the same wells that Avraham does. And he does the same thing with his wife that Avraham does. Sure. So he doesn't really have a chance to emerge into his own. But I like what you said about being a transitional figure, because what's important about transitional figures, I think their greatness is that they recognize that they are transitional and they don't attempt to be more than they can be. 
Indeed. Are you talking about the president-elect? Well, <laughs> we, we weren't going to go there, okay? <laughs> but that's true. In some ways, he already recognizes that. But maybe we should, we have a couple of minutes left, we got to talk about the death of Abraham or just the, 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 the last act. The last act, he has a wife, another wife. He, he, he gets busy. He has a lot of children. I would say when you all add them all up, there are about a dozen people that emerge from, with, with, with all sorts of grandchildren and, and, and the combination there. I think the signal is that he establishes another nation. And then he dies, 175 years old, five times seven, seven times five squared, a nice round number. And who comes to bury him? Both of his sons. This is really amazing because Genesis, we all know is that the family stories in Genesis, they're like, ah, they're wrenching, they're lacerating. As you imagine yourself to be Ishmael, the child banished by the parent and and left to die of thirst in the desert, and Isaac, you know, bound on the altar, and 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 Isaac, who loves one child and not another, Rebecca, who loves one child and not another, Jacob, who favors some children. Everybody's miserable, and yet you have these moments, these redemptive moments, such as this one, when Yishmael and Yitzchak come together to bury Abraham. You, you, they discover that there's some reconciliation and. It's really quite, you know, we, we need it so much. We need it so much that that uh, the children of Yitzhak and the children of Ishmael might be able to have some sense of togetherness. And to bring it back to where we began, they have this moment of redemption of community in the same place. They come back to the cave that Avraham bought and where he buried his wife in order to bury him. And they forge that link. That's what is going to make the cave theirs. It's not just Avraham's, but it becomes Everybody's. Isaac's and it will become Yaakov's as well. And nowadays, of course, it's a matter of political dispute whose it is, but the symbol is a symbol of hope and of peace, that it can be the place where different people can come together and acknowledge that they are part of one family. So that's a good place where we can end uh, this uh, edition of Parsha Talk uh, in, in the moment of culmination, a moment that looks forward to peace. We want to remind our loyal listeners and thank them that they can communicate with us at ParshaTalk at gmail.com. Parsha, P-A-R-S-H-A, talk at gmail.com. We love your letters and emails, and we look forward to responding to them. We're also remembering, I think, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, a formidable figure in the Jewish world, passed away. Uh, last Shabbat, uh, deeply influential in so many realms, uh, and especially uh, Parsha commentary. So, with all of that, we want to wish everyone Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. I want to point out here, guys, we got one Yitzhak and two Yaakov. All right, next week is your week then. Shabbat Shalom.